You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.28, Blue Bloods, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I have been reading Gundam Haiku all week. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and after several months of practice, I finally feel pretty decent at this editing thing. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 437 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, who have to wait just one more week for their shoutouts. Thank you for your patience. It's time for a haiku contest update. We have collected all the haiku that you submitted, more than 220 of them. And if everything goes according to plan, then this weekend, and that's Saturday, March 20th, 2021, I will start the voting process on GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon to determine the grand champion poet. Although because there are more than 220 of them, that process might take a little while. I will keep you updated as we go. And all of you who entered deserve a special shout out. We really enjoyed reading your poems. You are very creative. We clearly have the best fans. And almost all of you followed our no spoilers rule, so thank you for that. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 30, The Blue Team, or Ao no Butai, Part 1. For research this week, I have got a story to tell you about Franks. But first, let's tune in to Radio Free Shangri-La. Previously on As the Colony Spins. Ah, I see some mail from Mistress Alice has arrived. She's not planning a relaxing spa vacation at all. She's trying to arrange a match between Bethany and a Zeon officer. But according to the terms of their late father's will, if Bethany marries anyone rebelling against the Federation, she'll be disinherited. And then the whole Computesworth fortune would go to... <gasps> oh, how dreadful. What will the devoted butler Gildenstern do now, as the crisis of infinite radio dramas heats up? After Mistresses Alice and Bethany departed on the first leg of their vacation, I saw to the care of the Computesworth Mansion. I gave the rest of the staff their assignments, locked up the wine cellar, the cheese cellar, the root cellar, and the celery cellar, and gave the silverware one last fond polishing for good luck. At noon, the chauffeur returned and assured me that the sisters had safely departed aboard the star yacht Luxurian. At precisely 1.25pm, dressed in my traveling tuxedo, I met the chauffeur in the garage. Hello, Mr. Gildenstan. Ready to go to the spaceport? Oh, I'm afraid there's been a change of plans. Uh, please convey me with all haste to the industrial hatch in the junkyard sector. 
if I was to have any hope of foiling Alice's nefarious plan to steal Bethany's inheritance, I knew I had to get to Dakar first. So while the Luxurion charted a scenic orbit that had it passing over the wonders of the world, like the Great Wall, the bleached remnants of the Great Coral Reef, the mobile suit of Rhodes, and the nuclear fires of the Amazon, I took the direct route aboard a tanker ship, hauling cargo for Anaheim beverages. Margarita's boyfriend at Anbev tipped us off about the cargo ship, and some of her money convinced the captain to allow me on board. Uh, Margarita wasn't rich, not exactly, but she'd had a wealthy boyfriend in the Titans, and when he died early on in the war, he'd left her almost everything. The tanker didn't have permission to land on Earth, uh, but that wasn't a problem. Okay, Butler, we're over the Sahara now. The light on your right will turn red when the cargo bay doors open. When it turns green, that means we've finished dumping all the tainted soda and you are clear to make your descent. You, uh, you sure you know how to land that, Isaac? Oh, I wasn't always a butler, you know. I wasn't concerned about landing. What worried me was... Unidentified Hyzak, this is Dakar Air Traffic Control. You are entering restricted airspace. Turn around now or you will be destroyed. I had to take a risk. Control, I am a former Titans officer coming in to swear loyalty to Neo-Zeon. Neo-Zeon? Prepare to be destroyed, rebel scum. Huh? Are you kidding? Really? Okay. Uh, I've just been told we're friends with Neozeon now, so I guess you are cleared to approach. Neozeon is staging mobile suits on Dodai's in the harbor. You can land there. Why does no one ever tell me anything? Do you know how embarrassing it is to have to- After landing, I left my piloting tuxedo in the cockpit and made my way to the presidential palace. The staff there was busy preparing for the Neo-Zeon debutantes ball that very evening. But if I've learned anything about party planning, it's that you can never have enough help. Well, Mr. Gildenstein, this resume is very impressive. I'm afraid we don't have any openings for a butler at the moment. But my assistant is laid up in the hospital, and I could really use some part-time help for the big party we're hosting tonight. I hope your assistant is alright. It's his own fault for wandering around giraffe territory. Now listen, can you handle the catering? We want to make sure the Xeon dignitaries feel at home, so make sure you order some traditional space-annoyed foods. You know, pizzas, hamburgers, tasteless nutritive paste, whole persimmons, that kind of thing. I made quick work of my assignment. Hello, is this Alfredo Galbaldi's authentic Granada-style pizzeria? Yes. I'd like to place a large order. Then it was time to make the preparations for my own plan. But before I could... Hello, Guildenstern. Hector Pariah! What are you doing here? 
Alice thought you might try to interfere with our plan. Your plan? You mean... I'm afraid this is the end for you, old man. Oh, I'm, I'm not actually that old. In fact... Tune in next time for the thrilling continuation of The Crisis of Infinite Radio Dramas. Don't miss it. And now the recap for The Blue Team Part 1. Since his defeat at El Golea, Glemmy has been alone. Trudging along in the heat and the full sun, he cries out with happiness and relief when a Zaku tanker drives up from deeper in the desert, but faints before he can meet his rescuers. They were not sent for him. They aren't even Neozeon soldiers, but they recognize his uniform and think they might have a use for him. Nearby, Rue pulls a tarp over her core fighter to hide it from view while she walks to the nearby town of Gardaya for oil. It was supposed to be an easy errand, but the guards at the town entrance demand ID that she doesn't have, and no amount of arguing convinces them to let her through. Seeing a tall, robed, blonde man just inside the entrance, she says, But I know him! She throws herself through the guards and into an embrace with the stranger, acting as though he's her lover late for a rendezvous. He decides to play along, making excuses and assuring the guards that he'd vouch for her. Under their breath, the guards joke about how many girlfriends Mr. Genet seems to have. Genet and Rue walk away arm in arm, but once they are out of sight, Rue pulls away, apologizing for the trouble and thanking him for his help. He flirts with her, calling her a work of art and asking her to become his muse. And at first she worries about his intentions, but he reassures her and she agrees to go somewhere with him somewhere the Franks, or Europeans, hang out. The crew of the Argama are shorthanded, and struggling to keep the ship's equipment running smoothly. Not only does sand get into everything, but they are very low on oil. Rue handled resupply. Bright wants to keep heading north, but Astonaji thinks they should stop in Gardaya to stock up, and Judo supports the idea, thinking that if they stay in the area, they may find Rue. When Pudu hints that Rue is in the city, Judo takes off, promising to return with oil and rue. Pudu goes with him in the Wave Rider, and Eno and El follow in the Mega Rider and Mark II. When Glemmy comes to, he's surrounded by men in blue desert uniforms, white fabric wrapped tightly around their calves and turbans on their heads. They are the Blue Corps, a Tuareg group fighting for African liberation. Their captain threatens Glemmy with a sword and demands he spy for them in Gardaya. Glemmy will blend right in with the other Franks of the town, and will be able to move about freely. He is to report back when he's found the location of the town's control room. An unmarked door leads to a dark staircase, to an escalator, to an underground mall that feels like a different world from the town above. It would seem Glemmy is on the right track when he is suddenly distracted. He sees Rue, with a man he doesn't recognize, entering a bar. 
He watches them through the window at first, but Janae's flirting gets to him and he barges in, telling Rue that it's fate for them to meet like this. Janae tells Glemmy to back off, that he's obviously scaring Rue, and the two of them get into a fist fight right there in the bar. Once Glemmy knocks Janae back, he grabs Rue's arm and drags her away. The Blue Corps is waiting impatiently for Glemmy when they detect incoming mobile suits, and the young, hot-headed Elo rushes to launch an attack. Who is approaching but our team from the Argama? Expecting a peaceful trip to town, they are forced to break out of the way when an unexpected enemy craft flies straight at them. It's a rider of some kind, carrying two mobile suits, and one of them jumps directly onto Judo's wave rider, sending it crashing to the ground. Judo transforms the wave rider into the Zeta, and the two mobile suits clash while their comrades dogfight above them. In town, Glemmy takes Rue to a little cafe and attempts to express his true feelings for her. With Rue at his side, he could rule Neozeon. Rue puts him off, but their banter is interrupted by a commotion in the square. Flashes of light in the distance announce the fight in the desert and send townspeople rushing for safety. It must be the African independence movement's army. Rue suspects it's actually the Argama and is pleased at the thought of how hopeless they are without her. Glemmy jumps to his feet to get a closer look and when he turns back to the cafe, Rue is leaving. She disdainfully tells him that if he can be distracted in the middle of wooing her, he must not be serious. When Rue goes to load a small jeep with canisters of oil, she finds Janae waiting for her. He wants her to stay, but when he urges her to take shelter, she accuses him of cowardice and drives away, leaving him in a cloud of dust. In the fight between the Argamas pilots and the Blue Corps, Pudu reveals a valuable skill. She can anticipate when and where enemy attacks will be, directing Judo's piloting and once, even controlling the Zeta with her own mind, moving it out of the way of a missile barrage. The Blue Corps captain arrives as backup, and although Judo manages to immobilize the captain's mobile suit with a shot that destroys its foot, and L manages a perfectly timed shot to destroy another mobile suit, the arrival of the Zaku tanker is the Argama team's cue to retreat. Still, their trip wasn't wasted. Pudu confirms that she sensed Rue in Gardaia, and Elle suggests they hide their mobile suits and enter the town on foot to look for her. Glemmy steals a motorcycle and uses it to get back to the Blue Corps, where he finds their captain mortally wounded. With his dying breath, Captain Dido asks Glemmy to fight for the Blue Corps. Glemmy agrees and stays with his new comrades as they grieve their fallen captain. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone besides me describe it this way, but these first three Gundam series are really all uh, road trip shows. They're about traveling around the Earth's sphere and having a different kind of experience in each new place they go to. First Gundam, the white base roams around space and the Earth, and every couple of episodes they meet a new, interesting Xeon opponent who will try to kill them. Uh, and then Amuro has a different trauma in each place they go to. Zeta, they travel around what is basically a series of kind of samey, like middle-class modern cities in space and on Earth. The one exception being Hong Kong, which is only sort of half that. And in each location, the same group of approximately half a dozen generically handsome mid-20s sociopath men try to kill him. But in Double Zeta, 
it feels like every couple of episodes they find themselves in a new setting and they uh, go from community to community, from places like Moon Moon to fishing villages in the Bijagos Islands to oasis towns and now to Gardaia, which is a real place. It's a city in Algeria. Although I think probably the underground, super futuristic Frankish enclave and mall is uh, not real. I think that is an invention of the show. Elgolia, also a real place in Algeria, by the way. Turns out, I think it was rather prescient of me to talk about Pan-Africanism specifically, what that meant in Africa around this time, uh, because now we are basically in the Algerian War for Independence, I guess, kind of. <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of. <laughs> we have an ethnically Tuareg group of soldiers using not exactly old Zeon equipment, but replicas of old Zeon equipment to try to fight for the liberation of Africa, not from the Earth Federation, but from Europeans, who they refer to as Franks. Did a little mini research after watching this episode. Algeria was notable for a particularly large settler population that had been there for quite some time. There were about a million white European settlers Although by the time Algeria gained independence, many of them had been born in Algeria and had never been to France. Also that at some point, France may have considered Algeria part of France. They considered it part of the metropole and different from the colonies. Yeah, Algeria had a special status in the French Empire. European-descended people living there were treated as French people, French citizens, effectively for all legal purposes living in France. Although that privilege was not extended to the indigenous population. Except for the indigenous Jewish population. Yeah, it turns out the whole thing was super complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're going to do research on it, but Tom's point being that the Muslim population of Algeria was denied citizenship unless they were willing to renounce their religion. And so very few people did it. And we see these divisions reflected in the episode itself. And it feels a little strange. It feels a little bit like we are stepping out of the larger conflict, the Federation versus Zeon, Ayug playing a spoiler in that, and into a, a smaller, more local conflict, which is nonetheless tied into that bigger one. Because the African Liberation Movement, the Blue Team, are not members of this Neo-Zeon alliance. They are merely aligned in some ways. They share common enemies. And the leader of Blue Corps mentions that the leader of this African liberation movement was inspired by Neo-Zeon, which we know is a thing that happened in our own world, in our own Earth history, that various independence movements inspire each other. And not just inspire each other, but do provide each other with material, for instance, support of various kinds. So even though they're not really allied, it's not that surprising that they would see Glemmy as a potentially useful tool in their struggle. You mentioned this struggle in the context of the one that our characters have been involved in. And for me, it really highlights the degree to which we have a lot of space noids fighting over Earth who don't really know anything about Earth. Judo thinks that this group must be part of the Ayug v. Neozeon conflict. He cannot imagine that there is any other reason for these people to be here fighting. And this person has no interest in that conflict whatsoever. It does not matter to them. They have something entirely separate going on. And we've seen over and over, we have all of these outsiders fighting over the Earth who don't really understand it or what's happening there. 
In the background of this North African conflict, but always there, is oil. Yeah, this is the second episode in a row when they've mentioned oil. They are in need of oil. Rue goes into Gardaia looking for oil. The Argama is running short on oil because they're using so much of it. It still feels like foreshadowing, like they haven't transitioned to making a real statement about it, but it's definitely there. It's been a couple of episodes since it's come up, but we've pointed out over and over again throughout this Africa arc of Double Zeta that the Earth has made out to be very inhospitable to the space noids. And we get Eno's line about, oh, we have to oil the machinery like twice as often or three times as often as we normally would because the sand gets into everything. Mm -hmm. This equipment, much of it at this point, was not designed to be fighting on Earth. It was designed to stay in space. And so they're not accustomed to it. And it's in some ways a liability to them. It's creating this supply need. And I wonder if this is an intentional shift from First Gundam, because the mobile suits in First Gundam function perfectly well on Earth, just as well on Earth as they did in space. How much of that comes from the Earth Federation engineers who designed the original Gundam trio, the Gundam, the gun cannon, and the gun tank, being Earthnoids, more familiar with Earth environments and designing for an Earth battlefield, whereas the Zeta, the Mark II, the Double Zeta, none of these were designed for Earth. You mentioned the Blue Corps equipment. I want to bring up really quick the Zaku tanker, <laughs> which appears to have a face. Yeah, it's a truck and the cab of it kind of looks like the head of a Zaku. Yeah, this made me wonder if it wasn't originally designed to be a transforming toy. Mm. Maybe you had a, a toy Zaku that could transform into the Zaku tanker. Or maybe they just like the look of it. I don't know. But Yeah, I feel like this was just an effort to evoke Zaku-ness in your truck design. <laughs> the easiest way to do that is just put a Zaku face on it. Yeah. Since it's blue, it really looks like a goof. I, I gotta know. Say. I, when we first watched this episode, wasn't I the one who said, are those goofs? You did say that. In fact, none of them are goofs. It was a desert Zaku, an Ewak Zaku, or Isaac, as they are sometimes called and a Gelgoog. Elo mentions that there's a reason that all of their equipment is blue and their uniforms are blue and things. And there's a close association between the Tuareg people and this blue color because they dye a lot of their clothing with a particular indigo that makes it that shade. And apparently the indigo can also like dye their skin because they wear the blue clothes all the time. Speaking of background details that tell us a lot about the blue core, most of the time in Gundam, when you see firearms, handguns, rifles, it's made up sci-fi stuff. But one of those blue core guys definitely just has a Kalashnikov. He has an AK-47. And they have that very distinctive sword that some of them wear. Yeah, that's a funny thing. So the Tuareg are famous for their swords, but their swords don't look like those. <laughs> so I don't know what's up with that. Maybe it's just a mistake. We comment periodically about race in Gundam and how it is or isn't addressed or represented. And this episode brings it to the fore in a way that doesn't really make it less confusing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in Gundam, at least in the U.S., for the past 10 or 15 years, really as long as I've been aware of the Gundam fandom, there have been a lot of people who say, you can just skip Double Zeta, it's fine, it's nothing important about it, it's not as good as the other ones, watch first Gundam, Zeta, and then skip ahead to Shars Counterattack. 
But if you just watched first and to a lesser degree Zeta, you might come away with the idea that the universal century is like a post-racial society where things like skin color and ethnic descent no longer delineate status and identity. You might think that except for the lack of variety of skin tones. I mean, there's a little bit, but you're right. There's a lot less variety than there should be. But even so, you don't have a sense of racial conflict except between earthnoids and spacenoids. Mm -hmm. And the presence of one and the absence of the other suggests that the earthnoid-spacenoid conflict is standing in for issues of, of race. But in Double Zeta, it gets real explicit mm -hmm. that at least on Earth, those old prejudices are still in force. The bit that made me sort of double take and think really hard and write in my notes with a lot of underlines, what does it mean for Jeanette to call Ruluca, who I don't think it's ever been explicitly stated, but I assume she's a spacenoid, to lump her in with himself as us Europeans? How is she European? <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, like, Yeah, well, and Dido, when he's talking to Glemi, says a franc like you will be able to get into Gardaia no problem just by showing your past. But in what sense is Glemi, who was probably born on side three and definitely raised out in the asteroid belt, European? And there's very clear segregation within Gardaia. In the above ground, older city, we see you know, native inhabitants. In the underground city, we see almost all white people. There are a few tan or darker people, but very few. You know, they wear completely different clothing. The world they populate is completely different, even though it's directly underneath the other. And it's unclear how that segregation exists, whether it's enforced in some way or whether it's by custom and habit. Yeah, above ground, it's all brown skin, turbans, robes, traditional like masonry architecture and then underground it basically looks like a space colony yeah it it looks exactly like some street on axis and this conveys to us not only a segregation of race and class but also there's a, a lifestyle difference and the franks down in their underground city are just like engaged in leisure and commerce it is a mall and above ground, who do we see? We see guards. We see like a shepherd. A chicken. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little cafe, you know, Glemmy and Rue have a drink. Uh, That's true. There's a place you can get a glass of wine. But even so, the traditional modern dichotomy that has run through the whole Earth arc of Double Zeta is really stark here as they live literally on top of each other. And Rue's comment in the bar that, oh, this is so old fashioned. And, you know, is she picturing, like, the bar from Casablanca? Because it's old-fashioned to her. It doesn't look that old-fashioned to us, but... Plus Janae's line in response to this, which is sort of ironic given his social position here, but is also another instance of somebody just telling us what the show is about, <laughs> when he says, uh, no matter how technology develops, humans still want the same things. Yep. And uh, he says, you know, people don't really need advanced technology or new type of powers. What they need is the love of other people. And beauty. And a person might think that advanced technology and new type of powers are the means by which one can obtain what they desire, but not really. New type perception did not help Camille to obtain the love of other people. It might even have been a barrier to it. Right. There's just the added wrinkle of 
hearing Janae say this line is a bit like hearing someone who never has to struggle with money talking about how money doesn't buy happiness. <laughs> it's like, well, because you already have it. Uh-huh. <laughs> he can talk like that about technology. Would technology improve the situation for the other half of town? I don't know. But he's certainly not the person to make that call. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the mall in Gardaia, it didn't remind me of anything so much as the underground malls that are attached to a lot of subway stations uh, in particular places, especially major ones. Uh, there are a couple of subway stations in New York that have underground shops, though nothing quite so fancy. But I remember in Kyoto and in Tokyo, the, the major rail stations have huge underground malls attached to them with really good restaurants and shops and... It's a similar sort of feeling. I wonder when those were built. That's a good question. The other part being that it's not at all uncommon for immigrant enclaves in various communities to set up in their own separate areas. It's just that the power dynamics are different when they are white colonizer immigrants doing it. Right. (laughs) Well, these enclaves tend to take on the characteristics of the like source country or wherever the people are coming from. So we can kind of work backwards and we can say, we noticed that this Frankish European enclave in Gardaia looks exactly like the colonies. It's probably not that Gardaia is mimicking the colonies or the colonies are mimicking Gardaia. They're probably both pointing back to the same root, which is sort of Anglo, American, European, the West, quotation marks attached, monoculture. Right. And it's that to which the colonies and this on Earth colony are both hearkening back to. And so we see that there are some parallels, there are some similarities between the Blue Corps' struggle for an independent Africa free of the domination of the Franks and the struggle by the space colonies to be free of Earthnoid domination. But there are also important differences, and one of the big ones is that there are no indigenous spacenoids. And the spacenoids who are fighting for their freedom are descendants of Earthnoids. They're the cousins of the people who are dominating them. The cleavages of the different factions are different. It's definitely mishmashing time periods, but I got such strong Lawrence of Arabia vibes from Glammy being there at the very end. And he's this blonde white man fighting alongside these uh, Tuareg soldiers. And when the captain dies, he asks Glemmy to fight alongside them, to fight for them. It's a bit of a bizarre scene when you think about it. Glemmy has only known this guy for about a day. And their only prior action to this was not some heartwarming bonding moment. It was Dido holding a sword to Glemmy's throat and saying, you are going to infiltrate that enemy city for us. In Masai's heart, it was brought up the idea of, you know, certain things you have to do in the desert, and you share water if you find people who need water. And they rescued Glemmy. He might have died out there if they hadn't found him, so he sort of owed them one. And the younger soldier thinks Glemmy has run out on them, but he comes back. The fact that he comes back when he really didn't have to is part of what wins the captain over. The captain has also believed from the beginning that Glemmy could be of use to them, that allying themselves with a Neozeon officer could be beneficial to their cause. Oh, I totally get what the captain is doing here. Plus, he's lost a lot of blood, so <laughs> practically anything he says is, is explainable that way. It's Glemmy mm. being so moved by this well, and Glemmy, like screaming the commander's name to the sky, Dido! 
I didn't realize it was Glemmy who did that. I thought it was one of the other soldiers. I think it was Glemmy. I mean, it w- I guess it would make more sense if it was the other guys. <laughs> yeah. But we have to remember, Glemmy is extremely soft-hearted in a lot of ways. He's quite easy to uh, to move in that way, especially when That's it comes true. to, like, honor. This whole episode is people commenting on the remarkable, like, fighting spirit of these men. And that seems like the sort of thing that would appeal to Glemmy. Honestly, it's a bit of a shame that we're stuck with Glemmy for this arc because Mashima here <laughs> would, I think, be a better fit. We also have that whole exposition at the beginning of the episode where Glemmy is recounting the version of Xeon history that he learned. And he mentions how horrified that he is that Haman has been allowed to hold power. Now that he sees what sort of woman she is, he does not think that she is a worthy leader for Neo Zeon. And so maybe he thinks this is an opportunity to build power outside of Neo Zeon, build power with a group that Haman doesn't control. It's possible he's being pragmatic in that way. But the Lawrence of Arabia thing (laughs) is relevant because... Oh yeah, that is how we got here, isn't it? (laughs) Yep. That was in the First World War. He was a British officer, but most of what he was doing was helping certain Arab groups fight for independence against the Ottoman Empire. France and the UK had sort of come to a separate agreement about how they were going to divide up spheres of influence and territory in the Ottoman Empire once that empire fell. So they're both fighting the Ottomans. They've divvied up the spoils, more or less. But the British had agreed to give some of these Arab groups independent states, basically, if they took the territory themselves. And he was in the part of the military that was supporting that and providing like strategic support. Uh, And a lot of the people he was fighting alongside were Bedouin. And obviously, Bedouin and the Tareg are different groups of people, but they're both nomadic. They're both uh, famed warriors. And in both of these instances, we have like a foreign white guy uh, coming in to fight alongside them. And I don't think it's hard to imagine that given what Glemmy has to say about Haman early in this episode, he might be thinking something similar, where... In his mind, when Neo Zeon is triumphant and defeats the Earth Federation, then maybe he's imagining that this African liberation movement could create an independent Zeon-aligned Africa that is nonetheless separate from and not under the domination of Haman's group. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to, in the moment, attack the Earth Federation and in the long term, undermine his current ally, but also potential rival. This narration from Glemmy about the history of Zeon reveals something that had not been said in the show before, which is the timeline, that the Principality of Zeon was established in UC 65, so 14 years before the One Year War started. And that allows us to extrapolate some other information, because we know that the foundation of the Principality of Zeon took place around or a little bit after the death of Shar's father, Zeon Zumdaikun, which means that Shar was probably around five years old when his dad died. You mentioned that line from Rue about this feeling like an old movie, and maybe that's the writer consciously riffing on the fact that this episode is like an extended Lawrence of Arabia reference. The Lawrence of Arabia movie being quite famous and at that point already an old movie. Or perhaps because in this, you know, indeterminately futuristic society, to rue these kinds of colonial enclaves feel old-fashioned, feel like something out of history, something she thought didn't exist anymore. 
Or maybe Janae is just wooing her in an old-fashioned kind of way. Rue is not accustomed to boys taking her to bars like this. Oh, man. We will talk about how Rue deals with Janae and Glemmy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've talked a lot about the big political situation, Gardaia, the blue team. Let's actually talk about our main characters. Let's talk about the Argama, the Gundam team, and Rue. We open with the two groups split apart. Rue seems very capable and comfortable on her own. There's no sense of what exactly her plan is, but she's fine. Uh, whereas the Argama is having trouble without her. They are understaffed. She was the one who handled organizing resupply, and so they're sort of scrambling to deal with it. By the end of the episode, she has collected a truck full of oil, and we are told early on that her job on the Argama included keeping track of the oil stock. So I think the implication is that even though she has left, she's still planning to do her job. She's going to collect a bunch of oil and maybe bring it back to the Argama. She had made a comment about needing it for her core fighter at the beginning of the episode. I assumed mm. she was just picking up oil for herself. <laughs> maybe. I wouldn't have thought one small car's worth of oil that she has loaded in the back would have been enough for a ship like the Argama. That is fair. I'm kind of projecting Amuro from First Gundam onto her, where he leaves the white base, but he's not trying to leave the fight. He wants to keep fighting Zeon. He just wants to do it on his own with people who appreciate him. Pudu, agent of chaos that she is. <laughs> Uh, states quite explicitly that they blame Bicha for Ruby and Gone, that it's his fault. Bicha, of course, trying to pass off blame. Oh, Elle, you never liked Rue, and you always thought we would be better off without her, and I did it for you. And, like, those are things that Elle has expressed before, but so long ago as to kind of be irrelevant at this point, and she would never have done anything about it. Yeah. I would say... Rue is kind of getting what she wanted here, or at least what anybody who has ever gotten mad at a group and stalked off in a huff wants. You kind of want them to all sit around and say, gosh, we really appreciate all of the things that this person was doing before they stalked off. Wow, we're really in a lurch without them. Yeah. You really want those other people to make the person who made you feel so bad that you had to leave feel bad himself. It's funny, we have conflict avoidant Eno, who gets called out by Mondo. I forget what exactly he said, but it was something about Rue, and Mondo says, what do you mean by that? And he says, oh, nothing, just we never had these problems when Rue was around. <laughs> you called Puru an agent of chaos, and that's such a perfect way to well, describe her. Because I was thinking about how in the very last episode, Bright was saying that they were going to treat her like a prisoner, and clearly they're not, because she's running around <laughs> terrorizing the workers and stuff. From a story perspective, it's just easier if they don't treat her like a prisoner, because they can use Purdue's impulsiveness and her selfishness to cause problems that then need to be solved. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she is driving the action of the story through her, at this point, very well-established childishness. I'm going to turn this hose on myself. <laughs> Oops, I wasted a bunch of oil. Now we need to go to Gardaia, where Rue just happens to be. What do you make of her initial denial and hesitancy? Because initially she's saying Judo can't go to Gardaia. Do you think she's sensing the enemy presence nearby, or you think she doesn't want Rue to come back? I don't know. We know that Puru doesn't like other people getting close to Judo. 
And we know that she doesn't want Judo to have negative experiences. She doesn't want him to feel bad. And Rue has the potential to do either of those. After all, it's the people who are closest to you who can hurt you the worst. You brought up what Rue probably wants, right? And when she first sees the Gundam team fighting outside Gardaia, she thinks, ah, they ran out of oil because they didn't have me to handle it for them, and now they're coming here without any kind of plan. They're so lost without me. And she seems very satisfied by this idea. I am infuriated. I'm absolutely out of my mind with anger that we did not get Rue going, She's not evil enough or aristocratic enough for that. She's not an ohohojo-sama. But she could be. And she seems rather disappointed when the Gundam team retreat perfectly okay without her. <laughs> I don't know if she was intending to get in the core fighter and join them or, or what it precisely her plan was. She was booking it out of Gardaia pretty fast. But yeah, she does seem disappointed that they get out of this scrape without her. I will say, Tom is vindicated in this episode. <laughs> One of the things that we talked about, I think, off mic last week was that to Tom, Rue's behavior in last week's episode read as lonely. To me, it just read as obnoxious. But here we have Janae say exactly the same thing as Tom said. He can tell that Rue is a deeply lonely person. Well, I won't gloat. I did do a little victory dance when Nina said that, though. Rue's interactions with Janae and Glemmy are complicated for me. Like, it's hard. <laughs> On the one hand, there's always some risk associated with rejecting a guy and doing so in blunt terms. There's always some risk uh, that he's going to react in an angry or potentially violent way. However, Rue doesn't seem concerned about risk, and she seems to go out of her way to not encourage these men, but not discourage them either. It feels a little bit like she's stringing them along. Oh, I think she's absolutely stringing them along. I think Rue enjoys their attentions and has no interest in either of them. Well, yeah, her complaints about both of them are not real. Glemmy got too distracted by the fight, so obviously he doesn't love her enough. But Janae is worried about her safety, and that must make him a coward. He's not concerned with the fighting enough. These are not real complaints. She's just not into either of them. And enjoys their emotional suffering and also their devotion. <laughs> yeah, she's 17. We've covered this. <laughs> she almost appears to be falling for Janae when he sort of cups her cheek and is talking about how beautiful she is. She's overcome by the moment. Yes, right? absolutely. I mean, he's, he's very charming. The interaction between them when he's like, I want you to be my muse. She's like, oh, you want me to pose nude? <laughs> and he's like, the nude is not the only form of art, you philistine. Yep. The thing he says after their conversation about the nudes, where she's like, that's not normal. And he says, I'm not normal. I'm a genius. That was so good. I this deserves it. to be in the canon of the most hallowed Gundam memes. And it's an absolute tragedy that it hasn't caught on. We are going to have to, by we, I mean you, are going <laughs> to have to come up with a great meme. Yeah, like, this is at least as good as I came here to laugh at you. Oh, yeah. It's also a travesty that Jeanette did not turn out to be Quattro in disguise again. <laughs> Quattro would be so awkward attempting to seduce a woman. I don't even want to imagine it. <laughs> We've seen that once, and it was painful. Just bad. He's not good at it. 
One final thought about Rue and the Argama and so on. We get to hear Astonaji sort of draw attention to an issue we've noticed before, which is Bright's total lack of control over his crew. When Judo runs off and says, oh, I'm going to go get Rue and I'm going to go get oil. Bye. At first, I think Bright says like, hey, Judo, wait. And Judo just ignores him. And Astonaji looks at him and asks, is that okay, Captain? Are you just going to let him do that? And Bright turns on him and says, hey, going and resupplying was your idea. That's leadership, Nina. Leadership is when you blame the person standing next to you for whatever's happening. Also great in that same scene is when Judo like puts a hand on Bright's shoulder. <laughs> and he says, we should go to Gardaia, Captain. That way we can meet up with Rue again. And Bright turns this like withering glare on him and Judo removes his hand. Yeah, I believe Judo is sort of backing up Astonaji's suggestion about resupply and also saying that if they hang around this area a little longer, maybe Rue will come back. And it's the mention of Rue that makes Bright glare at him. At least the timing of it suggests it's not the resupply or the hand on the shoulder, but it's actually the mention of Rue. And as we said last week, Rue's desertion has to have hit Bright especially hard. I read it slightly differently. I thought it was just a response to Judo taking the liberty of putting a hand on the captain's shoulder and giving him advice <laughs> in that particular companionable tone that is not at all deferential. But just because I hadn't thought about the Rue element doesn't mean it wasn't there. And I can, I can see that being part of it, certainly. I pointed to the timing, and it's always hard to tell how much credit to give timing in these animated sequences, because part of the way the animation works is that while Judo is talking, all of the focus is on him, and then it's when he finishes talking that Bright can then, like, act and emote and respond, and so maybe Bright's reaction coming only after the Rue comment is actually related to the Rue comment, maybe it's just because of this, like, rhythm of the animation. We can't know. But speaking of the animation and the art in the episode, I want to point out a couple of neat visual details. I already mentioned the Kalashnikov rifle that one of the blue team soldiers is holding. When Rue descends into Gardaia, into the basin where Gardaia is, they do a pan across some rock formations towards the city. And then later in the episode, when they do a transition from Gardaia to the Zaku truck and the blue team's base, they just play that same pan again, but in reverse. Clever. The very beginning of this episode definitely feels like a nod to First Gundam. We have Rue caped and hooded, looking just like Amuro after Amuro deserted and is out in the desert, throwing a tarp over her core fighter, just like Amuro hid the Gundam, walking into a nearby town, winding up in a bar. Meeting a tall, attractive blonde there. <laughs> It's one of the most clearly and obviously referential bits, I think, that we've had so far. I want to mention while we're here, I really love the scene of Rue pulling the tarp across the core fighter and hooking it in with like bungee cables. I just love seeing those kinds of super mundane details actually given space in the episode. There's a funny moment in Gardaia, in the underground part of the city, when Glemmy is watching Janae and Rue at the bar and his face is pressed to the glass and you can see where his nose is like flattened. Yes. His nose and cheeks, I think, are sort of flattened against the window. He's doing that like small child pressing their face against the toy store window. How much is that dog in the window thing? Ooh. 
Another note about Gardaia, we've talked about how it's like a European enclave, but not all of the signs are in English. Most of them are, but there's at least one sign in the background of the mall that's written in kanji, which may be Japanese or Chinese. So it's a at least semi-multilingual immigrant expatriate enclave. Also in Gardaia, when they're in the bar, all of the liquor bottles have text written on them. And I think it's all references. It's a lot of them are hard <laughs> to read and they change like every time they're on screen. But one of them was labeled Dragon Quest. And the very first Dragon Quest video game came out just four months before this episode aired. Wow. Another one is labeled The Prisoner, like the 1960s TV show. I think one of them has Yoko Ono's name on it. They're really hard to read, though. So, like, I encourage all of our listeners to try to, try to suss out what these references are on these bottles. The other piece of animation I was very impressed with was the sequence where El and Eno are using some of the rock formations for cover. And then they cross-cut the screen. So we have Ellen Eno's faces separately, and I think also some of the background. I don't remember exactly how it's done, but Eno is counting down to when they will leave cover, and Elle fires a perfectly timed shot from her beam rifle that melts the legs off of an enemy mobile suit. And it's animated really differently. And instead of explosions sort of masking the damage happening... Uh, we see it sort of flooded with light and see the melting happening and then all the remnants, all the pieces of this mobile suit streaming thick black smoke fall to earth. Unfortunately, one of the shots while it's falling is really bad. The smoke doesn't even look all that much like smoke and it's not animated really. It just sort mm. of looks static and um, not great. I gotta admit, I did not even notice that problem because I was still freaking out from that amazing scene. <laughs> it was it's really, so really good. good. Ah. I mean, I've made no secret of the fact that I love Elle. I think Elle's the, the best character in the Gundam team. And while there have been women pilots in prior Gundam series, they are so rarely given the chance to be great, exceptional, amazing, and to get these kind of like heroic action scenes. And I love that Double Zeta gives them those. And she has such a, a unique character, too, because she has that moment where Eno tries to call her out for sort of hopping on to the uh, Mega Rider. He says, this is not exactly ladylike behavior. And she just ignores him. She's like, go, launch, go. <laughs> but anyway, the, the mobile suit falling to Earth, there's that one bad sort of intercut. But then at the end, when it actually crashes in pieces to Earth, again, looks great which contrasts, unfortunately, with the damage to the captain's mobile suit because it just gets shot in the leg and it doesn't even explode, and then somehow he gets mortally wounded. Yeah, the captain's Gelgoog, or Gelgoog remake, takes the, like, three heroic damage spots. It gets shot in the shoulder, it gets shot in the leg, and it gets shot in, like, the outside of its abs. Which, if this were a person, I don't think any of those would have been lethal, but shrug. He contracted narrative death syndrome. <laughs> Final note. Last thing I'm going to say. When Glemmy races out of Gardaia, he's just riding a motorcycle. He's riding a like contemporary 1980s Honda VF or VFR interceptor sport bike. The color scheme is a little bit different because the color scheme of the bike matches the color scheme of Glemmy's uniform. But other than that, <laughs> it's, it's exactly the same bike.
And now the research on Franks. During this week's episode, a number of characters are referred to as Franks, and Jeanet, the new beau looking to woo Rue, tells her that people in the area around Gardaia use that word for all Europeans. This is straight out of the real world, but it's a much larger phenomenon than the episode suggests. It turns out that numerous languages around the world use terms derived from the word Franks to refer to either all or a subset of Europeans. And I'm sure for many of our listeners who speak languages other than English, from Greek to Tamil, Turkish to Hindi and beyond, that's a pretty powerful well-duh statement. In fact, the phrase lingua franca, which for the longest time I thought just meant the French language, actually derives from the Latin for the Frankish language. And lingua franca was a, originally a pidgin mixture of Mediterranean languages that was used in trade for nearly a thousand years. But why? How is it that people all around the world started referring to Europeans as Franks? Well, hang on for a whirlwind tour of the history of the Franks. The word Franks, as a term for a group of people, comes originally from the 3rd century, when Roman writers started calling the Germanic tribes living north of the Roman Empire's borders in the western part of what is now Germany, Franks. Although the term was new, the Franks themselves were not new arrivals to the region. They were a fusion of tribes with long histories of opposition to Rome, like the Bructeri, who famously annihilated Publius Varus at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest back in 9 CE, or the Tubantes, who were defeated around the year 17 CE by ill-fated Julio-Claudian general Germanicus. These border tribes were sometimes enemies, sometimes allies of Rome, according to the needs and opportunities of the moment, and the Franks continued that tradition. The Franks didn't really have a single unified identity or history at this point. They shared no mythic ancestors, they had no ancient and famous name on which to pin their national pride, so they invented one. And like any nation living within the gravity of the Greco-Roman world, they decided that their ancestors must have come originally from Troy. By the 4th century, Rome was increasingly reliant on federati, so-called barbarian people who were not accepted into the empire, but who were recruited as mercenary soldiers to fight in Roman armies. And increasingly, their generals took over the Roman military infrastructure. The reasons for this are numerous and far beyond the scope of this podcast, but part of the reason was a centuries-long migration of tribes moving westward, which, in falling dominoes fashion, pushed other tribes further west. Eventually, this westward cascade would reach the fortified Roman borders, and it would meet a Roman army. The Franks, because they were already resident right on the Roman borders, were one of the first groups to be pushed over the borders in large numbers, and the Rome that they encountered was in a less advanced state of decay than other groups would encounter in later centuries. Throughout the 4th century, emperors like Constantine, Maximian, and Julian defeated Frankish armies and then settled the chastened survivors in communities along the Roman border. The hope was that these proud warriors could be turned from a threat into a buffer against other Franks and other warlike tribes steadily moving westward. In exchange for this military service, Rome provided a subsidy in cash and food. At other times, they would allow Frankish tribes to settle peacefully within Gaul, replenishing a badly depleted population and filling out the imperial tax rolls. 
This practice followed a long-standing Roman tradition of integrating defeated nations into the empire. That was the same process that had made the Britons into Romano-British and the Gauls Romano-Gallic. But now, the increasingly xenophobic elites of Rome lacked either the will or the capacity to weave new nations into their imperial fabric. Thus, although Franks within the empire did Romanize somewhat, they remained distinctly Frankish. And as more and more Franks moved south and west, the Celtic-Gallic culture started to shift Frankward. As Rome declined through the 4th and 5th centuries, the Franks seized military authority in Gaul, and the Romans just kinda let them. This is an oversimplification, but you can say that the classic Roman government was divided into civil and military spheres, and that as the empire declined, most of its important civil functions were taken over by the Catholic Church, while most of its military functions devolved to federati like the Franks. By 420, Gaul was divided into the Armorican Northwest, what we now call Brittany, the Frankish Northeast, the Burgundian East, the Visigothic Southwest, and a small community of Alans near Orléans. That picture of divided Gaul actually suggests more cohesion than really existed. On the ground, we're looking at a patchwork of different semi-autonomous tribes defending and feuding over small regions with the Franks as a whole ruled, if you can call it that, by a disunited group of royal chieftains. That status quo changed in the late 5th century, when Clovis I, son of Childeric I and purported grandson of semi-legendary king Merovec, united the Frankish tribes in the traditional manner and subjugated the Alamanni in the east, the Visigoths in the south, a Roman successor kingdom in Soissons, and negotiated a settlement with the Armoricans. Clovis is one of those historical names you might recognize even if you don't know who he is, because the Frankish kingdom that he welded together became Francia, and then, eventually, through some addition and subtraction, France. What was more important than the territorial acquisitions, especially for our purposes today, is that Clovis and his descendants established the Frankish identity as a unified and unifying nationality for those living within the Frankish kingdom. His descendants, the Merovingian kings, a name that they took from Merovec, that semi-legendary ancestor, would divide Francia and rule it for the next two centuries. The Merovingian pattern was thus. A powerful king like Clovis would unite the Franks and conquer additional territories, subduing long-standing enemies like the Saxons in the north, the Visigoths in what is now Spain, the Lombards in what is now Italy, and the Bretons in Brittany. He would have multiple sons, and upon his often violent death, his lands would be divided according to the Frankish custom, equally between all his living adult male sons. Then, for the next few generations, these rival brother kings and their children would fight, ally, and murder each other while steadily losing territory to the external enemies until a sufficiently powerful king emerged from the lot to unite the Franks and repeat the cycle. I know it's a cliché at this point to compare actual medieval history to A Song of Ice and Fire, so instead I will say that the Merovingians were just non-stop polygamy, adultery, incest, assassinations, crimes of passion, and general backstabbery. Eventually, the Merovingians lost control. I have no idea how it happened when they seemed like such paragons of stable and effective rulership, but they did lose control, and they were supplanted by the Carolinians, 
the greatest of whom was the famous Charlemagne. By the time of his death, Francia had expanded to include essentially the whole of Western Europe. However, it would be divided into three lesser Francias after Charlemagne's son died and left three adult male heirs. Of those three, one, Middle Francia, would dissolve within a few generations into a jigsaw puzzle of small kingdoms, and one, East Francia, would transform into the Holy Roman Empire in the span of a century. But that unifying Frankish identity would persist throughout Western Europe, at least for a little while. However, that only answers half of the question. If that was how the Franks forged their own identity, how did others outside Francia come to identify them that way? Remember, for the Romans, Franks started out as a useful general term for those folks from up there, you know, the ones who keep coming here and trying to kill us. From the Roman perspective, it didn't much matter what the specific culture or institutions of one tribe or another was. They were all similar enough to each other and different enough from other threats like the Goths to be lumped together into one big Frankish bundle. And then, hundreds of years later, the same process repeated, but this time further east. In the 11th century, a coalition of powerful European aristocrats led what would eventually be called the First Crusade into the Muslim lands of the Middle East. The majority of these nobles and soldiers were drawn from Francia, the Low Countries, and the heavily Frankish parts of the Holy Roman Empire. That would remain true throughout the Crusades era, and thus when they arrived in the Middle East, the inhabitants called them all Franks, as a useful general term for those guys from over there, you know, the ones who keep coming here and trying to kill us. From their perspective, it didn't much matter what the specific culture or institutions of one duchy or another was. They were all similar enough to each other, and different enough from other more familiar threats like the Byzantines, to be lumped together into one big Frankish bundle. The linguistic link between those two uses of Frank may in fact be more direct, although it's hard to be certain. It does seem to be the case that those Romans who we now call Byzantines continued the Roman practice of referring to all Western Europeans as Franks collectively, even before the Crusades, and perhaps the inhabitants of the Middle East adopted the practice from them. Either way, the practice stuck more firmly than did the Frankish identity in Europe itself. It also spread more effectively than the Franks ever had, carried by trade routes and the spread of Islam. When 16th century Indians encountered Portuguese sailors, the word they used to describe these European interlopers was derived from the Persian for Franks. For Muslims, the memory of the Crusades persisted, even hundreds of years later and thousands of miles away from the Middle East. And so when Portuguese conquistadors started attacking Muslim ships and communities in the Indian Ocean, the locals concluded that this new foreign threat must be the same people. The word used in Malay was also derived from Franks, and similar linguistic stories played out throughout Asia and the Pacific. The story of the Frankish identity is really the story about how identities change over time, how they can be used to construct the hostile other or to unify a disparate population. Who the Franks were changed gradually, from a loosely affiliated confederation of pagan tribes living in a small part of what is now Germany, to the Catholic nobles ruling Roman Gaul, to the inhabitants of Francia, to the Crusaders and their kingdoms in Europe and the Levant, to aggressive Portuguese sailors, and eventually, it would seem, it even came to include Spacenoids.
next time on episode 3.29, King of a Mole Hill. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 31 and Grasping Freedom with Both Hands. They're blue. Lizard Friend. Bad Knees. Hello, Mello. Yellow Dello. No, hello, Mello. Hello, fellow. The Artist's Curse. Lions of the Desert. Hater's gonna make some good points. Schisms. And with power like this, who needs mobility? You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... Iraj's physics consultations have utterly ruined my immersion. Now Gundam is unwatchable. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion is from Lucas. Thank you, Lucas. And thank you for listening. sounds so much louder in the rain. You're definitely cutting that line. <laughs> oh, do you want to? I'm not wrong. No, you're not. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I thought it, but I wasn't going to say it. Is it Genet or Genet? Is it Genet? I think it's Genet, but I would have to go back and listen to it again. Damn. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I don't know how I should say that. I think it's fair to say hello since it's... That's how they transliterate that's how they it. That's yeah. yeah. Ding. Ding. <laughs>leaving out all the like most horrible stories about these guys i mean that's all pretty bad pretty bloodthirsty dudes wrong gundam opinion